Well, good morning. I am honored to be here. Uh, my name is Raymond Marshall. As Pastor Dennis said, I am the Student Ministries Director uh, from Michigan. Again, I'm just honored to be here at Woodland Church. You know, I have some connections. I uh, got to be a group leader um, with the youth group a couple times at camp, so I know some of your students. Uh, Pastor Corey and me were co-group leaders, so we got to hang out and uh, cause chaos at camp together and have a lot of fun. So we love Woodland Church. We love your students. Um, and again, just honored to be here. My wife is here. Uh, she's over here on the side, my wife, Mercedes. Uh, she is the Michigander. I'm not from Michigan, and I'll get into that in a moment, but she's from Michigan. And then we have four uh, amazing, wonderful kids. Our oldest is eight years old. His name is Zion. Our uh, Judah is six. Our little girl, our only girl, Kinsley, is four. And then our youngest, Cooper, is two and a half. So we uh, we have our hands full, needless to say, but it is a fun season of life. Our uh, two boys, our oldest two, uh, they're in baseball together right now on the same team, and so it's a lot of fun in life right now. But again, honored to be here. My brother-in-law is here. Uh, Kenny McKinnon is back there. He drove all the way from Ludington to be here to hear me preach this morning. But uh, no, he, did, he, he was at the Michigan game yesterday, but he came to hang out this morning with us. <laughs> Oh, I heard it go blue. There you go. You know, I think me and Pastor Dennis have kindred spirits because I'm from Alabama. So we're, we have that southern, you know, bond. But I don't think he knew I was a Florida Gator fan when he invited me because being a Georgia fan, you know, there's a little bit of clashing there. But, um, but yeah, college football is one of my favorite seasons. But, uh, yeah, it's a great time. And there's some great things happening in student ministries here in Michigan. It really is. It's a, a time and a season where we're seeing God do some unique things in the young people in Michigan. And when I say young people, in my portfolio, uh, I really oversee kids and youth. So all the way uh, from kids' church, nursery, all the way up to youth, uh, graduating high school, and then I help out some with young adults as well. Uh, Chi Alpha, we do a lot with Chi Alpha. I was just talking with uh, Pastor Nino Garisco, who is over the U University of Michigan Chi Alpha. So, but as we're looking at kids and youth all together, we just came off of a great season of camps. We had our largest camp season we've ever seen in the Assemblies of God in Michigan. Largest numbers we've ever seen at our northern and our southern camp. And with that, not only did we see a lot of students, but what we saw was that there was a, really a hunger, a hunger for what God is wanting to do, a hunger for uh, what I'm going to talk about in just a moment, and that's sustaining revival. A little bit about me before I get into that, I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't grow up in the Assemblies of God. Uh, I kind of went to a Baptist church for a little bit, and then like most Southerners kind of bounced around, went to a Baptist church, and then uh, my parents divorced, and after that I went to a Methodist church with my dad in town, and, but I never really took it seriously. I kind of just went to church. Every once a month at the Methodist church, we'd get up and we'd come down and we'd kneel at the front and the, it was one of the, the older school Methodist church, so the pastor still had robes on and they'd give us the bread and then they'd give us the juice. And, and so it was just kind of a routine for me. But one of the things that I've noticed as I've gotten older is that though it was a season of life that maybe I didn't understand what God was doing, I didn't fully understand what I was doing, I can look back at it now and say, the Lord was laying a foundation 
in my life for what he was going to do years to come. So can I encourage you, uh, especially any young people that are in here, maybe you feel like you're kind of wandering, going through the motions. We just took communion. Can I encourage you, the Lord is doing something in your life. If you'll be open to it, if you'll be open to his voice, he's laying a foundation in your life for years to come. So I went to this Methodist church with my dad, uh, not really, again, not just kind of going through the motions. I was really big into football. I was a football player in high school, and that was kind of my life. Football in good grades. That's what I was kind of focused on. But there was a local youth pastor that would come and hang out with the football team. And he would do everything from getting us water to washing jerseys to uh, whatever he needed to do. And then on Wednesdays, our coach would actually let practice out early and give him a chance to do a devotional with the whole team. We don't see that much anymore. Um, and not even in Alabama, we don't see that much anymore. But I got to know this youth pastor to the point that I felt comfortable, like, man, maybe I should, maybe I should go check out his youth group. So I went to a production that his church was putting on, the local Assembly of God church, and the production was called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. Anybody heard of that? Anybody ever go to one? Yeah, so if you've ever, if you haven't been to one, essentially this is what it is. It's a production that's put on, and they play out a bunch of people's life stories on stage, and they all die, every single one of them. And one or two things happen. Either they walk up these beautiful stairs into these pearly gates, or this really big, scary-looking guy comes around from the edge and drags them to hell. That, that's the general gist of what you watch in Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. And I remember watching this, and there was this one person in particular that kind of stood out to me. First of all, I was scared to death watching this as a junior in high school. But I watched this one story of this young man, and he was a good guy, right, good guy. Didn't really do anything wrong. You know, wasn't going out doing anything crazy with his friends. Just living a good moral life. At the end of the production, or at the end of his life, something, I forget what happens, he dies. And I watch as this, again, big, scary look. It was the youth pastor who had, was actually playing Satan. He was like 6'4", 300 pounds. He was just a massive guy. Comes out and drags this guy off to hell. And I sat there in my seat thinking, Oh, dear Lord, that's my life. <laughs> this is not good. You know, in my mind, I was like, oh, no, that's me. And so I kind of got scared into salvation a little bit as a junior in high school. But that began my journey. Right there, I went down to the altar because I didn't want that to happen to me, right? And I gave my life to the Lord, and I started going to the local AG church. And I remember my dad saying something to me, because remember, he grew up Methodist, went to Methodist church, and nothing against the Methodist church, loved it. But he said, you sure you want to go to the Assembly of God Church? He's like, don't they do some weird things there? He's like, I've heard they do some weird. And I was like, I don't know, Dad. I just know that that's where I want to go. Started going to the AG Church in town as a junior in high school. And the Lord really began to set a new destination for my life. I went to my first ever summer camp the summer after I graduated. And that's where the Lord called me into ministry. I can remember where I was at at the camp in Alabama, Springfield Camp, going down to the altar and clearly the Lord saying, I want you to be a youth pastor. I want you to affect the generation after you like the people before you affected your life. And I had such a burning desire in my heart that I knew what I had come from, right? I knew the heartache that I went through as someone from a broken family that went through divorce 
And I, I, could, I could just tell the, the climate that that was, that was going to be the new norm. Divorce and family was going to be the new and, and my heart broke for kids that had to go through what I went through. And I knew the Lord was calling me to be a minister, a light, a hope to the generation. But I didn't follow it right away like most of us, right? Like most of us, we feel the Lord call us, but we don't quite jump in it immediately. I went to college went and did a year at Troy University. It's about the size of Central Michigan. It's a little, little college in, in Alabama. And in that year, got involved with Chi Alpha, but I kind of started to fade a little bit. I knew the Lord had called me, but I didn't walk out that calling immediately. I began to kind of fade. But thank the Lord for a youth pastor and his wife who I had allowed to speak into my life and gave open lines of communication to. Because at the end of that year of college, they came up, I was helping out with the kids' crusade at their church, and they came up to me and they said, what's going on with you? Just that blunt. And I was like, what do you mean? They're like, you know the Lord's called you to ministry and you're running from him. Thank the Lord for mentors that just shoot us straight, right? Thank the Lord for pastors that encourage us and shoot us straight and call out what the Lord's doing in our life. And I said, you know what? You're right. You're right. I'm going to go to ministry school. So I left college, left a full-ride scholarship to go to ministry school um, in Alabama, in Birmingham, Alabama, a master's commission. I went through my first year, and then my second year is where I met my beautiful wife. And I call it a thing of the Lord because in the ministry school we went to, you couldn't date your first year. You can't date. And so little did I know while that year I was at college, my wife did her first year of master's commission. And then she felt like the Lord called her to stay in Michigan, go to community college. I did my first year while she was at community college. And then she went back for her second year. So we didn't have to be tempted. We didn't have to be worried about breaking any rules of no dating. So we met uh, second year of ministry school. Uh, the Lord was really just doing some cool things in our life as uh, what we felt was setting our relationship up right on the right foundation, a godly way. And it was kind of towards the end of the second year that uh, we got an interview, I got a call uh, to go interview for a youth pastor position in Muskegon, Michigan, in my wife's home church at Central Assembly. Went up, interviewed. I was just telling Pastor Dennis the story. Went up, interviewed in March. First time I really ever saw snow, and I was terrified and excited all in the same time. Went back home to Alabama to ministry school, and in late April, I got a call from the pastor in Muskegon, and he said, hey, I want to hire you, but I'm going to retire, so you won't ever serve with me. You got to make that decision. But you know what? I felt like the Lord was calling me, so I took the position, served four and a half years as the youth pastor at Central Assembly of God in Muskegon, um, got married. That's where we had our first two kids, and then in 2017, moved to Northville Christian Assembly uh, in Northville here in Metro Detroit. Served there as the youth and young adult pastor for five years. Um, and then now I've been in this role for, I, I guess, January 1st, so about eight months. And I'm loving it. I'm lo it's an honor for me to serve the youth and the kids pastors of this network, to serve the youth and kids of this network. And really my heart and my goal is to come alongside the heroes, which are the kids and youth pastors, lift their arms, resource them, and say, let's do this together. Let's reach this generation that is hurting and broken together. And what I love about this generation is that it's a generation that's hungry. It's a generation that just wants to know what's true. I was just on a podcast with our superintendent, who, by the way, sends his greetings. Pastor Aaron Halavin sends his greetings. He loves Woodland. Uh, but I was just on a podcast with him, 
And I, I said this line about this generation, and I said, they don't really want to know the cause you care for. They want to know the Christ you serve. They don't want to know the next cause that, that they can get on board with. They just want to know Jesus. They just want to know the real Savior that died on the cross for them. They want to know the real Savior that forgives them of their sins and has a plan and a purpose for their life. They want to know the, the real Savior that's called them to ministry, that's called them to a higher standard. And we saw that at camp as we saw altars and altars full of students seeking after the Lord. I know you say, well, that's just camp, right? It is. But what I love is this summer at Lost Valley and Fajola, two separate camps, almost on the same night, both of our camp speakers coming out of worship said, hey, I just don't, I just don't feel like we're done. And we spent the whole service in worship and altar. Why? Because students are hungry. They're hungry for what I call revival. But maybe not revival as we know it. You know, not growing up in the church, I quickly heard the word revival quite a bit in the Assemblies of God church that I started going to. You know, the pastor would get up and pray, Lord, send revival. Lord, we want revival. And I was like, what is this word revival? I didn't obviously know much about Brownsville revival at the time or the Azusa Street revival, all these historical revivals that happened. But I quickly started researching and wanting to know what truly is revival. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. Because I think many times, especially in Pentecostal circles, um, not that we get revival mixed up, but that we miss the point. Sometimes I think we want revival more than we want the God who sends revival. We want the event more than the God that sends the event. But what I would say today is that revival is not an event, but it's a lifestyle that we should live as Christians. And I want to see a sustained revival amongst young people, but not only young people, a sustained revival in our churches. And that's what we need. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary says revival is the state of being revived. Very, very profound. The state of being revived, brought back to life or activated. I really think revival is the state of people's souls being brought back to life. Paul says at the beginning of Ephesians 2 that we were dead in our trespasses, but we are now what? Made alive in Christ. We are revived in Christ. I also think revival is marked by those that are spiritually asleep and, and have now been activated in their faith. And I think that right there is really what the church in America needs. A couple years ago, we had a, a missionary come uh, to our youth group at Northville, and he was a missionary. Him and his family uh, was originally from Malta, but they were missionaries in Iraq. And he told a story to our students uh, that I think affected me more than it affected our students. He said that uh, when he was over there in Iraq, they were uh, ministering. There's an underground church that was growing. And there was this couple in their church that had the opportunity to move to the United States. And of course, they jumped at the opportunity, right, to get out of the, the living situation they were in, the danger that they were in. They immediately jumped at the opportunity to move to the United States. He said it was about seven months later, they showed back up at their underground church at their house. And they said, what are you doing back here? And the husband said, well, we were in America for about three months. And he said, my wife looked at me and said, we have to go back to where the church is on fire. 
the church here is asleep. And this couple literally moved back to Iraq to be back in harm's way, but it was because the church they were a part of in Iraq was so alive and so full of the move of God. And it really hit me and made me start to begin to, to view what is the state of the church in America? And I think that the, the church in America, we need to be awakened from asleep. We've had a kind of an easy road, but now it's time to awaken. It's time to see sustained revival in our lives. And I think what we're seeing is that this generation of young people is seeing more friction than what we've ever seen in our lives as Christians. Growing up in Alabama, I told you, we, every Wednesday our coach would let us out of practice early so that we could have a devotional and so that we could get to church on time. We had very little friction in our Christian walk. But what our young people are facing now, it's heavy and it's hard. Everything they're, they're being taught, everything that's being pushed their way on social media and whatever it may be, it, it, it's not promoting Christian values. It's not promoting a walk with the Lord. But what it's producing is that the students that are deciding to follow the Lord are strong and they're dedicated because the other option is so much heavier. The other option is so much harder in contrasting following the Lord. What I, I think that's why what we're seeing in the young people is really what I consider a state of revival. I wanna read Acts chapter two, um, and I'm gonna read quite a bit, so hopefully you can stay with me on it, but I think it's really where we see the first true revival in the New Testament. And I think there's some things that we can really take out of it, some markers of revival, but also some keys that, as Christians, that can help us see sustained revival in our lives. Because, again, I don't know about you, but I, I wanna see sustained revival. I don't wanna just see a one-time event like Brownsville, and, and I get it lasted for a few years, but, or Asbury at the beginning of the year, we really don't hear anything about that anymore. You know, what I wanna see, in my, even in my own personal life, is a constant state of the Lord reviving my life, of saying, make me new. Create me a pure heart, O oh God. Renew a steadfast spirit in me, O oh God. And so I think we see that in Acts chapter two. This is what it says. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them his ability. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people from all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of Libya and around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. And we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. 
They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean, they asked each other. But others in the crowds ridiculed them, saying they're just drunk, that's all. Verse 14, then Peter stepped forward with the 11 other disciples and shouted to the crowd, listen carefully, all of you fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem, make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. No, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. In these last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. And I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon will turn blood red before the great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter continues, people of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him as you well know. But God knew what would happen and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to the cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life. And death could not keep him in its grips. King David said this about him, I see that the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and my tongue shouts his praises. My body rests in hope. For you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You have shown me the way of life and you will fill me with the joy of your presence. Dear brothers, think about this. You can be sure that the patriarch David wasn't referring to himself for he died and was buried and his tomb is still here among us. But he was a prophet and he knew God had raised him with an oath that one of David's own descendants would sit on his throne. David was looking into the future and speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. He was saying that God would not leave him among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand, and the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see and hear today. For David himself never ascended into heaven, yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be Lord and Messiah. Peter's words pierced their hearts and they said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. The Holy Spirit's poured out in the upper room. The disciples are filled. 
Peter gets up, the same Peter who had denied Jesus gets up, and he begins to preach. I mean, he begins to preach, and he doesn't hold back. He doesn't hold any punches. He preaches, and it says 3,000 people were saved that day. I think this is one of our first examples of true revival in the New Testament. And I think there's maybe three indicators that we can look at from this that kind of are indicators of revival. The first is a move of the Spirit. I'm not going to read it, but at the beginning of Acts 2, 1 through 4, it we see the Holy Spirit poured out in the upper room. It fills the disciples, and then they get up and they begin to preach. I think an indicator of revival is when the Spirit begins to move and call people. It's not my words that calls you unto repentance. The, the Bible says it's the Spirit that calls us to repentance. It's the Spirit that calls us unto the Lord. When we begin to see revival, whether it's in youth service or your own personal life and main service, the Holy Spirit is beginning to move and work in your life. Are you receptive to what the Holy Spirit's wanting to do? The second is there's a preaching of the gospel. We can't have a revival without the preaching of the gospel. It says Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd, listen carefully, all of you fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem, make no mistake. Verse 36, so let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Peter gets up and he preaches the gospel truth of Jesus was fully God, fully man, died on the cross, rose again for the forgiveness of sins. There is no revival without the preaching of the gospel. And then last is there must be repentance. For us to see true revival, there must be repentance. We see at the end of Acts 2, verses 37 through 41, it tells us that Peter's words pierced their hearts. And they say, what must we do to be saved? Peter explains to them, and then it says, 3,000 were baptized and added to the church that day. I think the markers, indicators of revival, a move of the Spirit, a preaching of the gospel, in repentance. Why is that important? I think it's important for us to know what true revival looks like so that way we can see, and listen, I'm not a heresy hunter or anything like that, but I think it's important for the church to know the biblical standard of revival, the, the godly standard of what it looks like so that we can know what a counterfeit looks like. And I'm not one to say, well, you should look at this movement. I don't think it's right. What I just wanna know is what's right for us and what the Bible says is true. And that's a move of the Spirit, a preaching of the gospel, and that there's repentance. Every time I go to speak to students, I pray, Lord, would this happen? Every, every time I'm gonna be speaking to students in a couple weeks at our called conference in Grand Rapids, it's a conference specifically for young people that feel called to vocational ministry. We have a gap right now in the Assemblies of God, and it's not just the Assemblies of God, but I can only speak to that. We have a gap of young people willing to go into, the, into, the, um, into pastorates, being kids pastors, youth pastors, lead pastors, missionaries. There's a statistic that says in the last 20 years in the Assemblies of God World Missions, the last 20 years, we've only had a net gain of 38 new missionaries in the Assemblies of God. In the last 20 years, only a net gain of 38 new missionaries. 
We have giants of the faith that have been serving in Russia and Lithuania and China that their time is coming to a close. They're either retiring or they're giving their life on the field. But it's time for another generation to answer the call and rise up. And so we believe in that. We have that in a couple weeks. But as I'm preparing my message for that, I'm preparing, Lord, would your spirit begin to move? May the gospel be preached. And, and I know I'm talking to students that feel that call, but may there be a sign of repentance in their heart and an answer to the call. Every time we preach, every time we, we long for revival, I think those are markers that we must shoot for. Let me quickly talk to you about how do we sustain revival. I know it took a long time to get here, but I want to make sure we understand the context, the backdrop. I tell young people all the time, if you're not understanding the context of what you're reading, you're not reading it right. So we got to understand the context. I want to see sustained revival in the church. We see these kind of sparks and these, these kind of big burns, so to speak. You know, growing up in Alabama, uh, I grew up around pretty much strictly pine trees. I didn't know what a true fall looked like until I moved to Michigan. And I remember my wife tried to tell me, her family tried to tell me, like, just wait till it turns fall in Michigan. And I'm like, really, what's the big deal? I don't, I don't understand it. It's like the, the leaves are green and then they fall off. What is, and then I saw all the different colors of a Michigan fall and it was like a whole new world. You know, it was amazing. In, in Alabama where I grew up, it was pine trees and so it went green to brown and that's it. There was no beautiful colors. It was green, brown on the ground. That's, that's kind of how it went. But I tell you what, if you ever want to see the most magnificent fire you've ever seen, you get some of that dried brown pine straw, you put it in a big pile, and you'll see the biggest fire immediately. It's like putting gas. You don't even need gas because it's light gas. You light it, that dried pine straw, it'll be humongous. But with that, it burns for about 20 seconds, and then it's done. So it's the most glorious fire you've seen for 20 seconds, and then it's nothing. So if you're not putting logs on that, if you're not putting wood on that, it's done. The point of that is, I think in the church we've seen these glorious moments of these big revivals and these big burns, and then it's gone. My heart is that in this generation that we see sustained revival, it's not just this big moment, but that we're putting wood on it. We're discipling students so that they walk this out for their whole life. That when they leave high school and go to college, they don't walk away from their faith like statistics say that they do. A, a kind of a, maybe another title, if you want it, is sustained discipleship. Because I think revival goes hand in hand with discipleship. I should be a disciple of Jesus every day longing for a move of his spirit, longing for more. So a couple things that I think can show us what a sustained revival looked like. I'm going to start reading again in verse 37 through 47, and then we're going to talk quickly, three quick things. It says, when they heard this, they were pierced to their hearts and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, repent, baptize each of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God would call. With many others, with many other words, he testified strongly, urged them to be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 people were added to them. But here's the key. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, 
to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed to the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. The early church saw sustained revival. The first thing is this, to see sustained revival, one of the things. Revival is often sparked in public, but it is always sustained in private. Revival is often sparked in public, but it's always sustained in private. It says, Acts 2.42, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to sharing meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. They have this big public moment where Peter gets up, he preaches the gospel, 3,000 were saved. It's a public moment. You, you can remember that moment in your life, probably at a service, maybe at a youth camp, where you gave your life to the Lord for the very first time. Or maybe that, that time at the altar where, where the Lord really sets you free from something that you had been dealing with. The Lord filled you, whatever it may be, but you remember that public moment of that happening. And that's great. We need those moments. The disciples had those moments. But in Acts 2.42, it says after this big public moment that revival seems to be sparked, it said they devoted themselves. If you look up that word devoted, it is a very, not harsh, but a very intense form of that word. To be devoted. I've had to look at my life at different points because I, I love college football, as Pastor Dennis was talking about. And you can see me get intense and excited and reading all the articles. And at different points in my life, I had to look back and say, am I as devoted to my relationship to the Lord as I am for this. I think as Christians, we have to ask ourselves, are we devoted? But it says they devoted themselves in private to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to sharing meals, and to prayer. Revival sparked in public, but it's sustained in the private. And I think it's sustained by a couple things. First, it's sustained in private by the word of God. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, sustained by the word of God. Psalms 119, 113 through 116 says, I hate those with divided loyalties, but I love your instructions. You are my refuge and my shield. Your word is my source of hope. Get out of my, out of my life, you evil-minded people, for I intend to obey the commands of my God. Lord, sustain me as you promise that I may live do not let my hope be crushed. We must be sustained through the very word of God. Through the very word of God. Students would come up to me in our youth group and say, you know, Pastor Raymond, I just haven't heard God speak to me lately. Any youth pastor, I'm sure, can remember these moments. These students, I just haven't heard God speak. And every time I would ask our students, well, when was the last time you read your Bible? I believe God speaks to us in mighty ways, in different ways, but can I tell you, the most clearest form of God's voice in your life is the scripture. It is the Holy Bible. It is what sustains us through life. Every situation that we go through in life, I believe the Bible can sustain us and maintain us and encourage us 
in our life. And if we want to see sustained revival, sustained discipleship in our life, it must be sustained through the Word of God. And through the second part of that is sustained by fellowship. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Let us not, not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. One version says that consider gathers and encourages. Can I encourage you? And you're here this morning, which is amazing but we have to be sustained through fellowship. Do not forsake gathering together as the day of the Lord draws near. The disciples were gonna be facing some pretty hard times, some pretty intense moments. But one of the things, as you all read through the New Testament, one of the most consistent things you will read is that they consistently gathered together. They did not stop meeting. They did not start, stop hanging out. Can I encourage you, if you're struggling, if you're going through a hard time in life, can I encourage you, get with your Woodland family, hang out with the people in this church, be encouraged by your family in this church, because it's the fellowship of believers, it's the fellowship of like-minded people that helps sustain us when life gets hard, because it's the believers that are there to encourage us provoke us to good works, to gather together. And the third thing, as we talk about being sustained in the private, the third thing is sustained by prayer. If you look throughout Jesus' life, and I'm not gonna read all the, the verses, but if you look throughout Jesus' life, just about every time before he did something miraculous, before something amazing happened, it says what? Jesus went off to pray. Matthew 6, 46, after feeding the 5,000 and before walking on the water, Jesus went off to pray. Luke 6, 12, before choosing of the 12 disciples. Luke 9, 18, before Peter's confession of faith in who Jesus is. Luke 9, 28, before the transfiguration. Luke 11, 1, before the teaching the disciples how to pray. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, all these are moments where we see Jesus went off to pray. One of my favorite stories, and it's kind of a, maybe a weird favorite story, but right before Jesus feeds the multitudes, if you really read what's happening in the life of Jesus, he gets his disciples on the boat, and they're going to go away to pray, and yet his life gets interrupted when they get off on the shore because there's people waiting to hear him speak, and that's when the, the feeding of the 5,000 happens, but when Jesus got in the boat, he had just heard the passing, the, not, I guess not passing, the murdering, the beheading of his cousin John. And I think sometimes maybe we read things like this in Scripture in the life of Jesus and we kind of gloss over it because, you know, well, Jesus was God, but he was, but he was fully man as well. Fully God, fully man. And yet Jesus in this moment, you can imagine what he's feeling, that this is his cousin. He's prepared the way for him, who baptized him. And he's finding out that, he got beheaded, and yet he gets in the boat, he gets to the other side, and he steps off, and there's thousands of people waiting to hear his message. And what does he do in that moment? He graciously teaches them. He graciously preaches to them and then feeds them. I think he's able to do that because his life was sustained through prayer. He never broke 
communion with the Father. And so I want to encourage you, be sustained by prayer. I know it might not always be easy. There might be some of you here that you pray all day, every day, as Paul encourages us without ceasing. But for those of you who maybe don't have a consistent prayer life and you say, well, where do I even start? Can I just encourage you just to start? It doesn't have to be anything long or crazy. I remember going to ministry school my first year, the first day at ministry school, they gather us together at 8 o'clock in the sanctuary. It's first day. And they're like, we're going to start off the day with prayer. And I'm like, okay, yeah, we're at ministry school. That sounds right. Seems like the right thing to do. And they're like, we'll be back in an hour to close it out. And I said, an hour? How am I supposed to pray for an hour? So I walked around for about 5 to 10 minutes praying for everything that I could think of. And at the end of those 10 minutes, I said, I don't have anything else. I don't know what to pray. So for the next 50 minutes, I walked around looking like I was praying because I didn't know what to do. But can I tell you, by the next four or five months in ministry school, by the time Christmas came, I was praying the whole hour, not because I was anything special, but because every day I just practiced. What was once 10 minutes turned into 12 minutes. And once was 12 minutes, now, oh, man, this week, 20 minutes, I can think of things to pray. Just start, right? Just start reading your Bible. Just start praying. Five minutes here, five minutes there. The more you do it, the more natural it feels, the more consistent it happens. But we must be sustained in the private through the word, through fellowship, and through prayer. The second thing about sustaining revival, revival is often sparked in a moment, but it's sustained daily. Sustained daily. I always prayed that one of the marks of our youth ministry would be that we had students that lived daily lives for the Lord. That lived daily lives for the Lord. That they didn't just come in on Wednesday to hear me preach and then they'd leave out the next day and wonder, what is this whole Christian thing? And then they'd come back in the next week and tell me everything they've done wrong. My prayer was, Lord, would we see daily Christians? Because our walk with Christ must be a daily thing. Not a once or twice a week thing, but daily. And what I love is that God gives us what we need. God gives us what we need sustained daily. If you look at Exodus chapter 16, verses 4 through 5 and 16 through 21, we see this story and we, we see that God wants to sustain us daily. This is what it says. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, the Israelites, they're, in, they're out in the wilderness, said to Moses, look, I'm going to rain down food from heaven for you. Each day the people can go out, pick up as much food as they need for that day. I will test them in this to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day they will gather food, and when they prepare it, there will be twice as much as usual. These are the Lord's instructions. Each household should gather as much as it needs, pick up two each person in your tent. But when they measured out, everyone had just enough. Those who gathered a lot had nothing left over, and those who gathered only a little had enough. Each family had just what it needed. Then Moses told them, do not keep any of it until morning. But some of them didn't listen and kept some of it until the morning. But by then it was full of maggots and had a terrible smell. Moses was angry with them. After this, the people gathered the food morning by morning, each family according to its needs as the sun became hot. The flakes they had not picked up melted and disappeared. We see 
God giving instructions for the Israelites to pick up what they need for what? That day. That day. Nothing more, nothing less. That day. Why does he give such specific instructions? One, because he knows the Israelites and he knows us. And he knows that if they pick up more than they need for that day, what? Then they'll stop depending on the one who provides for them. God gives us what we need for this day. Our oldest son is uh, eight years old. I probably uh, owe him 20 bucks. I started telling him that if I talk about him in service, I owed him money. Actually, I didn't tell him that. Some pastor told him that after I spoke at a church. He's like, you know, the rule is if your dad talks about you in service, you get money. So now I guess I owe him. But when I got this position eight months ago, it was quite a change for our family because I travel around a lot. Travel up north, out the west side of the state, travel a lot. And so it kind of flipped our schedule upside down. We had known for a while that we were in transition, and we were very open and honest with our kids. We, we try to live a life that our kids know, because we do this as a family. Ministry is something we do as a family. So as soon as we knew we were transitioning out of our church, really the, when we moved there, our oldest two, were, two kids were three and one, and so it's really the only church our kids had known at that point. But we told them, hey, we're moving, we're transitioning. We had interviewed at different places. We thought maybe we were gonna move out of state, away from family. And so we kind of told our kids from the beginning what's going on. And our oldest, when I got into this position, he, he really struggled with worry and anxiety to the point that when I'd be gone, I'd FaceTime him at night, pray for him, read the Bible with him. But it'd be one in the morning and he's calling me, I'm like, Dude, you got second grade tomorrow. You got to go to class. Like, you got to go to sleep. It's one in the morning. But the Lord is faithful, and he's beginning to settle him. But the one thing that we consistently talk to him about is, listen, Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about the future. But today's enough to worry about, and he gives us what we need today. The same goes for our lives. If we're going to be sustained daily in the Lord, we have to trust him for today, And I know there's so much worry in the world. There's so much things to worry about. I, I get it, but can I be sustained and live in the Lord today? Don't worry about tomorrow because he'll take care of that. Do we trust the Lord enough that he'll sustain us today? It's interesting, in Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16, Jesus says, You are a light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Jesus equates us as a light to the world. He equates us to a lampstand that gives light. What's interesting about this story is Think about the time frame that Jesus is saying this and um, think about the type of lamp that they would have. It'd be an oil lamp, right? They, don't, they didn't have electricity. They couldn't just flip the light on. It would have been an oil lamp. Growing up in Alabama, one of the things we had a lot, and praise God when I moved to Michigan, we just don't have them that much, was tornadoes. Uh, we had a lot of tornadoes. I, I mean, it felt like every other week in the fall, uh, that we were having a siren going off. And so power would go out a lot. And my dad had this old oil lamp that he would pull out. He would turn the wick up, light it. And I always wondered, Dad, you know, 
we're in the 21st century here. Like, we don't have a battery-powered lamp. We have an oil. But what happens as that lamp burns throughout the night, if we don't replace the oil, it'll go out and it'll, it won't burn again. Jesus equates us to a lamp that burns bright, right? But what, what has to happen to that lamp? It's got to be refilled. It has to be refilled to be used. It has to be refilled to be a light. The same way, if we're that light, if we're that lamp, and we need to shine for Jesus daily, what does that mean? That means we have to be refilled daily. We have to be sustained daily through what? Through the word, through fellowship, through prayer. So can I encourage you, as we seek sustained revival as a church, as we seek sustained discipleship, can I encourage you, Yes, there's a moment that we have at the altar where God does something amazing. He heals, he calls, he sets free in that moment. But can I encourage you, let's be sustained daily. Let's lean on him daily. When we get up in the morning and say, Holy Spirit, what do you have for me today? Holy Spirit, who do you want me to talk to today? Holy Spirit, how do you want to guide me today? The third thing about sustained revival, and then I'll wrap it up and turn it back over to Pastor Dennis is I believe revival is marked, sustained revival is marked by sacrifice and generosity. Acts 2, 45, they sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. So these thousands of people are getting saved. They're meeting in homes. They're gathering together. They're hearing the word. They're praying. They're breaking bread, taking communion. But it says that they sold their possessions, their properties, whatever they had, and they would actually distribute it as anybody had need in their community. I believe when there's a sustained revival in a generation, in a church, it's marked by sacrifice and generosity. How do I know that? Because I can look at this generation of young people that we can see this revival beginning to spark. And I can look at their sacrifice and generosity. Last year, BGMC and Speed the Light, which I'm sure you guys are familiar with, the missions arm of the kids and youth. Last year, BGMC and Speed the Light, across America, kids and teenagers gave the most they've ever given to Speed the Light and BGMC. They were about 250,000 shy of $30 million given to BGMC and Speed the Light. This generation is a generation that is marked by sacrifice and generosity. But not only are they marked by sacrifice and generosity with their money, but with their time, their efforts, their energies. This is a generation that is willing to sacrifice their life so that others may hear the gospel. This is a generation that's willing to sacrifice their own comfortability so that others may hear the gospel. This summer at camp, uh, we always would do a thing in the morning called the Breakfast Club. Our Youth Alive missionary who is overseas, uh, Youth Alive for Michigan, and he really the focus is campus clubs, teaching kids how do you start a, a Christian club on your campus, your high school, your middle school. This summer at camp, every morning, we saw over 150 kids at that service, at that breakfast, saying, I want to know. I'll give up my morning. I'll get up earlier than I need to. I want to know, how do I 
start a club on my campus? How do I start something that other kids can be impacted by the gospel? This generation is one that is marked by sacrifice and generosity. We, as a church in America, I believe in order to see that sustained revival, we must be one that's marked by an awareness to the needs around us and the world around us. Because once we're aware, then we're able to be sacrificial and generous to our community. Think about what a church that's marked in the community is one that's marked by sacrifice and generosity. So thanks for having me today. I really, my heart is that as a church, as a movement, that we are one that's, that really longs for revival in our hearts. That we long for true discipleship in our lives. That we long to have daily relationship with the one who gave everything for us. Because he's worthy of that. He is worthy of daily relation. He is worthy, worthy of daily communication. He is worthy of daily praise. And so my heart and my encouragement to you today is let's be sustained in our revival. Let's be sustained in our daily walk with him. So thanks for having me. I'm gonna turn it over to Pastor Dennis. Would you come join me at the front of the altar here at the church and Let's have a word of prayer before we go home together today. Hallelujah. Just come on down front and gather around. <clears throat> I want us to pray together. I want us to ask God for revival, not only for our families and ourselves, but for our church, and especially for our students as they go back to school. Just pull in close. Everybody can get in close together. <clears throat> Becky's playing that song, I'm Coming Back to the Heart of Worship. And I hope they'll put the lyrics up on the screen so that you can see it. And I want to encourage you with something. That was a good message this morning. There's a lot of depth to that. And um, sometimes people aren't used, but Woodland is, to following along with a message like that. I almost quit the ministry, and I've told this story to our congregation before because... Becky and I were in our mid-twenties, and I just didn't feel like people were taking the gospel seriously, and they were fighting over things that weren't worth fighting over. And I remember I went back into, we had this ugly green bedroom. Remember that? That lime green bedroom? I went back in that bedroom. I was in a cranky mood. I said, God, this is the ugliest bedroom. I'm at the ugliest church. It's just... If it's meant for sinners, our church is full of it. And I was a youth pastor, so I couldn't say those things because I didn't want to hurt my pastor. And I remember kneeling and praying that day and just pouring my heart out. And finally, when I was exhausted and couldn't think of anything else to say, and I'd already told my family I was quitting the ministry. I'd called my scholarship counselor at the University of Georgia. They'd give me back my scholarship. And the Lord just so clearly spoke to me. He says, Dennis, stop worrying about everything else and just preach the cross. Charles Spurgeon said, whatever scripture you go to, make a beeline for the cross. So when you're discouraged, look to the cross and remember what Jesus did for you. If you're struggling with sin, 
look to the cross and remember that Jesus died for your sins. You have victory over sin today. Sin has been defeated. Can you say amen? And if you're suffering with sickness, look to the cross. For Jesus took your sicknesses to Calvary this morning. And if you're confused, look to the cross. For Jesus took all of our confusion upon himself. And he said, this is the way, this is the truth, this is the life. Walk ye there in it. Preach the cross, live the cross, look to the cross of Jesus Christ. And Raymond, more than anything else, I want Jesus for this church, for our schools, for your family and my family. I want us to take up our cross daily and follow him. Can you say amen?